and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to thedispatch.com to see all of our free stuff, all of our web-only uh, material, and maybe, just maybe, to sign up to become a paid member of the Dispatch community, which would make us all very happy, and um, we think make the world a better place, and where you could find out the truth about Spanish wine, as told by somebody. Anyway, uh, today's episode is brought to you by... Um, our friends at Donors Trust and from the Caucus Room. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so um, not that you guys need to know a huge amount about like the the, the sausage making of this podcast, but you know sometimes uh, good guests are hard to find for scheduling reasons or whatever, <laughs> and you really have to sort of scrape the bottom of the barrel and you know just grab what you can off the shelf. And so we decided to do that today. And get and bring back um, this guy, uh, Steve Hayes. Um, you may have heard of him. You may not have. Um, fewer and fewer people hear of him all the time. But uh, he works with me at the Dispatch, and um, he was the editor of the Weekly Standard. He wrote a big book about Dick Cheney, and um, he eats a lot of cheese curds. Steve, welcome back to the remnant. <laughs> do you, do you know? I, I'm totally serious. I think the last time you had me on, uh-huh. you did the nobody else would come, so we had to scrape <laughs> the bottom of the barrel thing. And at a certain point, I'm going to start to think eh, less less jokey than maybe ought to be. Uh, well, you know, I, I have nothing to hide from my listeners. Uh, Good to be back. No, we're we're for truth in all uh, all its many forms. Um, so I figured I'd have you on because one, you know, it's been a while. Two. Uh, you've actually been doing real reporting on this strange week that we've had, and um, and I also thought it might be good to do some level setting about what's going on at the dispatch um, as we head into the home stretch of uh, this fun, upbeat sort of lifetime movie of the week, uh, um, fulfilling presidential campaign. <laughs> so um, let's sort of start at the. Um, at the beginning, I will just sort of fully disclose that um, when Dr. Conley gave his press conference at Walter Reed, the first one, uh, there was one thing he said that I found to be incredibly uh, reassuring and inspiring in a lot of ways. Uh, He said that uh, Donald Trump is only slightly overweight, which is just... Exactly what I needed to hear, um, because I, I that makes that's a useful benchmark for me. So um, but beyond that, uh, Mrs. Lincoln, I didn't think the press conference was all that great. But uh, what do you make of what's gone on over the last? You know, it was the first. Uh, it was a first sign that we were just not going to get good information from um, from the president's medical team from the White House on this. And you know, you sort of hoped against hope that you would. Um, in, in this context, because it's so important, because it matters so much, because it matters beyond sort of immediate politics or, you know, Donald Trump's positioning vis-a-vis the campaign, but it matters for things like continuity of government and the continuation of the, of, uh, of the Republic as it were. And you just didn't. And, you know, watching that press conference late Saturday morning, there was the the slightly overweight <laughs> comment, which probably should have been a tell. Uh, <laughs> but the, but the real moment when you knew that that he was just not leveling with you was was in response to the repeated questions that he got um, about uh, the the president. I mean, there were a number of different times that he dodged, but he got repeated questions about whether the president had been given supplemental oxygen and. You know, he kept saying he's not on oxygen now. Um, he's not currently this moment on oxygen. <laughs> and again and again and again. And you just knew this this guy's avoiding stating the obvious. And what we need is to have somebody who's willing to state the obvious. Um, yeah, I mean, I, people, I got into a bunch of Twitter fights with people um, who thought I was being unfair. They've all abandoned this position now that even 
Conley has admitted that he screwed up in the first press conference. Right. Um, but at the time, they were like, you know, you shouldn't be treating like uh, that Steve Miller guy was like, you know, you shouldn't be treating um, Conley like he's Kaylee McEnany. You know, he, you know, and people are like, oh, you, why do you expect a medical doctor to have PR skills? And it just seems, I mean, you can definitely go f- overboard and go full CNN in overreacting to the, all that stuff. But just as a matter of just basic good government and the right thing to do for the country, you don't have to disclose stuff you don't want to, you don't think you should disclose, but you shouldn't seem like you're covering up something. It's bad for the country. It's bad for your patient. And the truth is going to come out and you're going to have lost credibility. And it just seemed like such an amateur hour thing um, and such a dumb way, even if they were going to lie, they could have gotten their ducks in a row and lied better. But it was like the worst of all possible worlds. Yeah, I mean, it was very obvious that he was withholding information. And we would find out in the subsequent uh, three days that he was holding a lot of it, withholding a lot of information. But as you say, even even what he said, even what he sort of shared affirmatively was, you know, often either misleading or wrong or required correction. And it's just not the way you conduct yourself. I mean, I guess if if we were talking about, you know, an ER doc who was describing uh, an unfortunate head-on collision and the condition of a patient that happened to come to his ER and, you know, he had to make something up on the spot or describe the situation on the spot and he's dodging violations of HIPAA on the one hand but trying to share as much as he can on the other, doesn't have practice doing this, it's all extemporaneous. You could you you'd be I think a lot more tolerant of some of these mistakes. That's not what we had. We had the the doctor for the president of the United States, the leader of the White House medical team, at Walter Reed Hospital, giving a briefing that he knew that we all knew the entire country was going to be paying attention to. World leaders were going to be pay attention paying attention to would have implications for markets around the world for. Uh, national security situation in the United States, our enemies were going to be listening to it. There, there just wasn't room for those kinds of mistakes. And, you know, they they made these corrections. He originally said, or one of the doctors originally said, uh, 72 hours ago, we started such a, a course of treatment. And they later revised it to be, this was day three of that. And they made another revision on 48 hours ago and made that day two. Did, did you not take 10 minutes before you started to get those facts right? And there's a reason that doctors talk in terms of 24 hours, seven, 48 hours, 72 hours. And it's because that conveys some sense of precision. And those timeframes have, have meaning, particularly in cases like this. So to screw that all up was really unfortunate. And then, as you say, I mean, you know, he, he sort of owned it. It, during a subsequent briefing after they had issued a paper clarification and after they had to go and sort of walk back these totally contradictory uh, assessments given by the president's doctor who was bright and sunny and said everything is on the up and up, more or less, and the president's top advisor, chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who told reporters initially on background, but later it was lifted to on the record, that the president was in real trouble that, you know, they were not out of the woods, that this was very, you know, very concerning uh, health issues on Friday, moments after we were told, in effect, he was great. So it's just disingenuous of people who are complaining about the media for screwing this up. You had White House officials, the president's doctors and others giving directly contradictory information, obviously misleading uh, information, obviously mis- uh, deceptive information at a time when reporters are then supposed to convey that all accurately. We're just trying to make sense of it. Yeah. I mean, the the other problem with the, oh, the media is out to get Trump, which I think it's certainly true of some media sure. outlets. Yeah. Sure. But the media is out to get every Republican president. I mean, more so with Trump. I think we can stipulate that as well. But that's the, that's an argument for getting things right not for being sloppier, right? Because like in in the Bush administration, you would have people, or the Reagan administration, or virtually every other Republican administration, you would have people saying, look, they're going to hang on every word and they are going, let's not give them an opportunity, 
Let's not have any unforced errors here that makes it easier for the media to screw with us about something so consequential. And, you know, there's a reason why there is this technology called paper that people sometimes put words on <laughs> and then read from it <laughs> so that you get your initial statement right the way you want it to be. And if you had any sense that Conley was incapable of doing that, you should have just sat him read a statement and then maybe take some questions, but at least it would be in front of him. Okay, this is what my talking points are. It was right. just such amateur hour stuff. So but I think you that to, to that point, just if I can, to that point, there's a reason they weren't being straight with us, right? Donald Trump thought it was I apparently thought it was very important that he be portrayed as as a conquering hero, even as he was sort of really suffering. Um, you had you know Mark Meadows giving briefings on the White House driveway at. 10.50 a.m. on Friday when apparently the president was in somewhat acute distress saying, you know, things are looking good. Things are things are moving well. They had to give him supplemental oxygen. They gave him these experimental cocktails that require sort of exceptions, FDA exceptions, because they weren't yet approved. All of this is happening sort of behind the scenes. But the White House PR machine was clearly pushing a everything is great. Donald Trump can conquer COVID storyline. And we've now seen in the days since that that's, that was the through line here. I think there are real questions about the timeline um, from the diagnosis going backwards. When did they first, when, when was the president's last negative test? When was his first positive test? When did he know that he'd been exposed to COVID that we simply don't have answers for or don't have credible uh, answers for, answers that we can be confident in. And then there are also, there's also the prospective case where after the president's diagnosis, they pretty plainly made a decision that they were going to portray him as this conquering hero. And we've now with the return to the White House and the helicopter flight and the videos that the, the White House has put out and the president's balcony appearance, you know, he has said, people shouldn't worry about this. Don't let it dominate your life. This is, it, it can be overcome, which obviously through his tweets and, and his comments, a lot of people have had, I think, an appropriately negative reaction to that. It's a pretty extraordinary thing to say, especially if you're somebody who has missed a, a family outing or, or not been able to go to a funeral or not been able to comfort somebody who was sick with COVID or lost somebody who was with COVID. Pretty extraordinary thing for the president of the United States to say. Yeah, I want to get back to that in a second. But first, so what is your theory about what the hell Mark Meadows was thinking or was he thinking when he walked over and gave that statement off the, off the record in front of live cameras Yeah, <laughs> to, to the pool? I mean, I don't, let me just say, I don't know. Um, I've, tried to do some reporting around this and I've gotten sort of partial answers from some of the people I've talked to, but I cannot, I cannot tell you definitively my reporting says X. So to be very clear, I am speculating here, but I think he had to be knowing what had actually transpired over the, the previous 24 hours. He had to have been uncomfortable with what he was hearing from Conley's mouth at the press conference because it, it's so contradicted what Meadows had just been through with the president. And, you know, at that time, if you believed, as, as Meadows apparently did, that things could really take a turn for the worse. And look, that's consistent with what we've known about the progression of the disease, right? I mean, you, you can be asymptomatic for a while, then you begin to show symptoms. And then, you know, this can take a dive off a cliff real quickly, or the symptoms can continue, or some people improve pretty quickly. But I think Meadows didn't want to be the one who had literally stood next to the doctors as they gave this very sunny um, assessment of the president, knowing that for the previous 24 hours, the president had been in trouble and Mark Meadows was there with him and saw it. It was, it's never the, never was the case that we were not going to learn that the president was having trouble. Like that's going to come out. There are too many people who know this. And so I think Meadows was sort of protecting himself to say, if this comes out, I'm not going to be the one who sort of abetted th this misinformation. Yeah. I mean, I, I go back and forth about what Meadows was up to because the second he was outed as the guy who did it, he then spent the rest of the weekend trying to clean it up right. with Trump. Right. You know, and yep. all of a sudden trying to square the circle of 
saying he was in bad shape, but also he's, you know, he's strong like bull. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, you know, and I don't want to characterize, uh, let me put it this way. Our friend, Tim Alberta was on the other day, um, talking about Meadows and he was in high dudgeon about how he's seen Meadows go from literally in the same 20 foot area, go from one journalist and say X and then go to another journalist and say not X, right. And play media games. And so, and I have my own, you know, limited experience with Meadows, uh, so it's hard for me to think that his motivations were entirely what is good for the Republic and, and setting expectations are right. And it has more to do with him wanting to cover his ass should things yeah. have gone south. I mean, I just, I think that's, it's Washington. He's a politician. Yep. Put aside all of the personal stuff I know about Meadows. That is the safest bet with anything in, in, in these kinds of circumstances. But I think it's all the more likely given how he's behaved since then. All right. So now, as you mentioned, Trump has come out. And I think the general consensus among Republicans, uh, pundits, reasonable people of all stripes was that this was yet another opportunity for Trump to get a restart and say, um, I learned from this. I, um, I now understand at least a little bit what a lot of families have been going through. This is a serious thing. We need to take this seriously. Um, it would have been an opportunity, at least the theory goes, to arouse sympathy from Americans. And um, instead, he went with the sort of Riefenstahl-esque flight of that Marine One. All that was missing was the sort of plant blasting flight of the Valkyrie from the helicopter back to the white house with the whole, um, stair climb and, and Mussolini kind of act. Um, um, do you think that's going to help him? I mean, who, who does it help him with? I don't, I don't quite understand who it helps him with. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, um, I don't think he, I think he's likely to be defeated and defeated pretty soundly regardless. And I thought he was likely to be defeated and defeated pretty soundly before this happened. The one chance, I think, the, the, the one sort of moment of hope was when the, the Supreme Court nomination was kind of thrust on, on him and he took advantage of it, nominating Amy Coney Barrett. If it were possible to have a debate largely about the Supreme Court with COVID lurking in the background, and I think the president's mismanagement of the pandemic, um, it's not going to be in the background in a literal sense, but if the president chose to focus instead on the Supreme Court fight, remind some reluctant Trump supporters, Trump supporting Republicans, why they voted for him in the first place, there was a chance I thought that he might be able to, you know, divide the country once again and gin up his base that way in such a way that would get those skeptical Trump skeptical Republicans or or uh, undecided independents to support him. I think we just lost that opportunity. He lost that opportunity when uh, he came down with COVID. And I, you know, I've talked to some people who have been advising the president uh, on this. And <clears throat> I think what they would say is, look, the only, the only way through for the president is to, uh, in terms of political, um, in terms of taking, uh, a, charting a political course, the only way through for him to, was to say, I am strong. The country can be strong again. We are defeating this virus. The economy is coming back. The jobs numbers are getting better. Look at how we can push through this. Nothing can defeat the great United States with Donald Trump at the helm. And, you know, I would argue that just because he doesn't have a better, necessarily a better political argument, still the obvious right thing to do, in my view, was to make a public health case, you know, we had Dr. Jonathan Reiner on the dispatch podcast, uh, the interview podcast last Friday, and he'd sketched out a scenario where Donald Trump says, you know what, we made some mistakes here. We didn't take this as seriously as we could. And we were in one of the most protected bubbles 
in the world on coronavirus and it's still got through and it tells you how contagious it is, it tells you that it's really important to, to wear masks, to social distance, to do all the things that, that everybody else has been saying and actually do some, some public health good and potentially save a lot of lives. And, you know, it's, I, I guess I'm not surprised that the president chose the other course and did what he thinks is best for his own political fortunes. Yeah, well, see, but the thing is, I think, so first of all, I, I think you're leaving out another opportunity, which was the debate. I think, you know, I, I think one of the great stories of Donald Trump's presidency is that time and time again, because of the nature of the presidency itself, the presidency constantly offers presidents paths to fix their standing. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember Bill Clinton just looking like he was going to be a one-term president, you know, halfway into his presidency. And then in part because the, you know, the great toe-sucking cephalogist Dick Morris <laughs> told him, you know, you got a poll test where you're going to go on vacation and talk about school uniforms. And he hired David Gergen and he moved to the center and um, ended up crushing Bob Dole, you know, and uh, everyone, it looked really bad for George W. Bush uh, halfway into his first term. And it looked pretty bad for Barack Obama. But the presidency offers just such an enormous platform to reframe yourself, reframe your opponent. And I know you don't, you know, you only have a passing understanding of these things called movies, but it does <laughs> remind me of uh, this. Uh, there was this movie called Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino. And, I saw um, that movie. Okay, so there's this there's this scene at the end where they have the tribunal thing, and he gives this, you know, I mean, like Pac-Man level scenery eating uh, speech where he says, um, "Throughout my life, I've been at a crossroads, and I always took the wrong path because it was I always knew what the right path was, but it was just too damn hard." and Trump, again and again and again, ever since he's been elected, has been just been given these opportunities to actually be presidential. And he's, he's admitted it. He says it. It's too boring. He says, I could do that, but that's boring. And no one has been able to explain to him that the very definition of why they call it a base is that the base gives you the flexibility to appeal to voters beyond your base. And he's never understood that. He's much more, he's too much of a marketing guy and thinks that his market is the only thing that matters because they're the ones buying the hats. And he won't like reach out to the people in the middle who like his policies, want, you know, would, you know, your Coney strategy, Coney Barrett strategy makes total sense to me too. Um, you know, both of us were sort of all on board. You know, we were part of the team for the first time in a long time during the Kavanaugh hearings for precisely the reasons you suggest is because there's some things that are important to conservatives that you can just look past Donald Trump's behavior on. And I think that speaks to millions and millions of gettable voters, but he is just too concerned with his own image and with doing fan service for his own base to translate that into an actual winnable strategy. And so the debate was a blown opportunity. And then the COVID thing was a blown opportunity. But I bet you, if we sat here for a while, we could come up with 10 more blown opportunities yes over the last three and a half years and he just he, he has given himself pl plenty of opportunities to turn and look presidential by not being presidential pretty consistently throughout his his presidency no i totally agree i mean look if, if i thought he was more of a long-term thinker i would I, I, the explanation would be at least in part that he won doing this right so this is the way he ran this is the way he is this is the way he was he won in 2016 his lesson to the extent that he ever reflects on it is I'm not going to listen to all these people who tell me to take a different path or be presidential or whatever, because that's not what worked for me in the past. Not concerned. He's not concerned about down ballot races. Uh, but I don't think he is thinking that I, honestly, I think he's thinking in, in a, in a, a short term way for him, the long term play here is the next 30 days. It's to get elected, but there's also a, an even shorter term, time frame for him, which is what's going to get me applause, what's going to get me kudos, what's going to get, you know, my base and the the hosts on Fox News to say nice things about me tomorrow and the next few days. And look, if if he made that calculation and he decided that his PR strategy was going to be 
Trump the COVID conqueror as, uh, you know, as, as, a, as his final hand, his final message going into November, he was certainly right to believe that a lot of the people in the Republican base and the conservative media, the Trumpy media, were going to echo and amplify what he said. Because you've seen, I think, you know, uh, sort of absurd levels of uh, sycophancy on this question coming from people who should certainly know better and from some people who don't. I mean, Kelly Loeffler running for uh, Senate in, in Georgia, who's a, a senator now, tweeted out this, you know, it was a it was a, a scene from when Donald Trump participated in in uh, professional wrestling and, and sort of slammed. I don't even know who the person was in, in original version of it, but it was somebody wearing a, like a covid head down on the ground. And, you know, you, that's that's what he's gotten. That's what he sought. And that's what he's gotten from his base. So if you're if you think, as I do, that Trump is a pretty short term thinker, that he wants that sort of immediate adulation, then this has probably worked out the way that he had hoped it would. Yeah, I mean, the the we'll get more to that. I want to return to that in a second. But the the video that the Trump campaign put out, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, uh, last night on Monday night. Um, I don't know what the football game was, uh, but they put Trump's head on this yeah. is a, an official video of the Trump campaign, put Trump's head on some running back who made this great run dodging um, COVID. I think, yeah, I think it was Brandon Ayuk from the 49ers game over the weekend where he does this leap over somebody trying to tackle him. Yeah. So, and then like, like, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people, smart people, you know, people who want Trump to win, who literally had said, man, I hope he comes through, but I really hope he doesn't do some spike the ball in the end zone kind of routine. And then the, literally they put out a video that's like a spike the football in an end zone routine. Literally, yeah. It was straight out of, you know, Chris Buckley book. It was just unbelievable to me. And you have to wonder, look, I, I hate this sort of, sanctimony i am sure there are thousands of people who have friends who died of covid friends or loved ones who died of the coronavirus who love the video who are totally in for trump regardless just because people have diverse attitudes and they interpret facts in diverse ways but there is just no way that there aren't also tens of thousands of people who couldn't go to their mom's funeral yeah who um, lost a spouse or a grandfather or a husband or whatever, you know, watching this, you know, end zone dance kind of response and, you know, fear, you know, heroic leader of the, of the motherland thing who couldn't get access, immediate access to a hospital, couldn't check into a hospital. I mean, like, you know, Chris Christie immediately checked into a hospital. We spent the last six months with public health officials telling people do not go to hospitals unless you are in dire straits because we're overwhelmed and these guys get to go in and they get these experimental cocktails and they get these drugs that other people can't get or can't afford. And rather than show some humility and compassion, they do this crap. And I just don't know who it wins over that it wasn't already won over. Yeah. I, so I agree with you entirely. I mean, I think, I think again, just from having had some conversations about this with folks who are supporting the president or advising him, you know, they think that this is a base election. Sarah Isker has written about this a number of times in, in her sweep newsletter. Um, and while I don't, well, I think there are probably more still persuadable voters than, than she does. I think she's definitely right that each of the campaigns sees this primarily as a base election. Get the people who support you to the polls and that will mostly determine the winner. So I think this is a play to to Trump's base. And we've seen that that is an awfully sticky base. I mean, they stick with him almost regardless of, of what happens. I do get the sense and, you know, I don't, who knows, right? It, it's sometimes it's hard to, to, to figure this out, but there's a sort of double whammy of effect here. I mean, first, you know, the, the guy that has held himself out as invincible throughout this entire process um, who has very clearly and publicly been reckless about 
how to handle this. Um, you know, literally mocking reporters at White House briefings for wearing masks, um, repeatedly down talking masks, repeatedly downplaying the disease itself, the virus itself, um, including back in, in his interviews with Bob Woodward all the way back in, in February and March saying, I want to downplay the virus. I know the virus is more serious, but I want to downplay it. Um, you know, there's, there's the puncturing of his, um, his attempts to look invincible on the one hand, which I think could be, could, could do some political damage. Um, but then there's also this kind of cavalier, totally selfish way that he's responded. It's, it's evident through things like these videos, but, you know, we're learning every day about people in the white house who have been, uh, you know, who have, who have caught the virus because of the way that, that Donald Trump insisted that his white house handle this. I mean, it was, you know, you've heard, uh, comments on the record, uh, comments. These are not anonymous officials, but you've heard on the record comments from people who worked in the white house saying it was just frowned upon to wear a mask. People didn't wear masks. It was very clear that you didn't want to wear a mask. Matt Pottinger, who was a a deputy advisor, uh, deputy assistant, the president on the National Security Council wore a mask regularly, and he was mocked for wearing a mask. People gave him grief for it. So I think all of those things coming together here as we enter literally the last four weeks of the campaign, you know, setting aside even what the implications are for the president's ability to go and campaign, um, I think that it's like a culmination of his recklessness and irresponsibility on this over the past nine, 10 months. And, and we're seeing it now affect him in a personal way that ought to be embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the, the real vulnerability in all of this for him, just looking at it electorally is that, you know, the last Democrat to win among seniors was Al Gore. And, um, Trump, I mean, like the CNN poll, which came out this morning, which has, uh, Biden up 16. I think we both agree. We we're texting about it before. It's probably an outlier, but it's, it's, it's not a crazy outlier because this, the NBC poll had him up 14. Right. So two, two extra points is, you know, for, you know, it's just not that big a, an outlier. Right. I mean, my guess is, is that both are a little excessive and it'll come down from that. Certainly it'll tighten up by election day. But the place where even if those polls are just impressionistically correct, where Trump is bleeding is among seniors. Yeah. And it makes sense when you think about it for two seconds, because what do seniors do a lot of? They go to the doctor. Right. You know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to, you know, I mean, my mom has to talk to doctors all the time. She's got health issues and, you know, she's in her 80s. They talk to doctors all the time. And every time they go to the doctor, the doctor's saying, what are you what precautions are you taking? Or look, COVID yeah. could kill you and blah, 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 blah. And it's disrupted their lives in ways that even, you know, I mean, it's disrupted other people's lives in different ways. But for um, in terms of just straight on face to face messaging seniors have been told again and again and again by people they trust and literally put their lives in their hands that this is serious and you should take it seriously. And then yeah. they see the, the president doing this stuff. And I, I tell you, you know, the Woodward conversation that I think is the most damning in some ways, which I had not heard before. I heard it played somewhere the other day is Woodward asked him about Fauci. What do you think of Fauci? And he said, Oh, he's a good guy, blah, 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 blah. And then Trump and, and Woodward says, have you ever just like sat down and had lunch with him and had a conversation about all of this stuff? And Trump says, there's a long pause. And then Trump says, yeah, I, I guess I must have at some point, you know, like he, he, yeah. he, he clearly hadn't, you know, right, and right, right. if, if, if and this is at the same time when these guys are talking about this, like it's a war, they yeah. say it's a war. And the idea that like FDR never would have had lunch with Eisenhower. Yeah, you know, amazing. You know, like, amazing. Like, FDR would say, lunch, are you crazy? I, I talked to the guy 10 times a week, you know. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. We've been out to Camp David. I guess they didn't have Camp David yet. But, you know, like the idea that they wouldn't have in-depth conversations with essentially the top general in this fight just shows that they never took it seriously in the first place. Exactly. And look, you know, it's interesting. Fauci, Fauci was dropping these breadcrumbs all along. Um, you know, Trump supporters 
dismissed initially dismissed the idea that there was any daylight between Fauci and and Trump, and then turned on Fauci pretty quickly um, as the as the virus went on and somehow tried to blame Fauci rather than Trump. But Fauci gave an interview. Boy, it must have been in in April. Um, or May when he just while the, these briefings, the daily briefings were still going on. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I see the president maybe twice a week. And, uh, the, the president sits in on the coronavirus briefings, maybe a couple times a week. And otherwise it's just the, the people on the actual task force who get together on their own. And he gave an interview that didn't get a, much attention. I believe it was last week to a, a gay and lesbian media outlet where he said, not the dispatch, by the way, just to be clear, but go not on. the dispatch <laughs> where he said, we've tried to get him to give us an interview actually. Um, where he said to, to the interviewer, he said, you know, the, the, we, the president sort of chimes in once a week on these things. And we mostly talk about the economic recovery now in these coronavirus task force meetings, which is pretty amazing when you think, uh, you know, the fact that we're averaging maybe a thousand deaths a day, you're still talking about uh, new cases at 40,000, sometimes uh, jumping up to 50,000 a day. But there's been, you know, a determination was made months ago that the president was going to campaign on defeating the virus, on pushing us through and you know, putting us in a position to make America great again, again. And it's like no amount of actual data or news is going to change that. But here's why I think it's a really risky strategy. In fact, I was talking to, uh, to our morning dispatch team, the folks who work on reporting out the morning dispatch this morning about this. You know, if you go back and you look at the, the polling on the lockdowns, for instance, it, it wasn't the fact of the lockdowns that kept Americans from engaging in the kind of economic activity that would have potentially forestalled some of the, the damage that we've seen. It was that Americans themselves were nervous about the, about the virus and didn't want to be out engaging in that activity. And I don't think the polling has shifted that much. So you have a president, again, reflective of a, a base strategy, who's, who's trying to create this perception that the virus isn't anything to worry about when you've got a, the vast majority of Americans who are worried about the virus. And look, I've been wrong before. That may end up being a winning strategy by some quadruple bank shot that I don't currently see. But it seems to me trying to convince people who are really worried about the virus that they shouldn't be worried about the virus and therefore should vote for him because he's going to make America great again. That is a recipe for potential electoral disaster, I think. Yeah, if you're not seen as trying to beat the virus, right? Because there's a difference right. between, like, like when they say he's running on beating the virus, what they mean by that is pretending that the virus doesn't exist, which is different than, like, crushing the virus. Right, um, right. You know, it's, it's if you're going to use a war analogy, there's a difference between crushing the people who are sending artillery shells over the border um, and pretending that no one's firing artillery shells, right, you know, right. and they've tried to muck that up. Um, you know, I do think, you know, getting back to this, what's going on with conservatives thing, there really was this sort of missed opportunity because there is still, you know, we, you know, I mentioned before Kavanaugh, that was the last time I was invited back on Fox and friends was to talk about how I was all in for Kavanaugh and what the left was doing on Kavanaugh was disgusting <laughs> and all that. And um, uh, I remember one of the, ho afterwards, um, they, they wanted to bill it as a, um, segment about how the Kavanaugh hearings are causing conservatives to come around to Trump. And I had to say to, um, one of the hosts, I won't out names, um, Hey, look, I'm still not a Trump supporter. I just, I'm in favor of this nomination. I think what the left is doing is terrible, but like, I am not a MAGA guy now. And that really shocked them. And then afterwards, one of the other hosts kind of kept dunking on me for the rest of the show about what, what could I possibly, what, what, what more does Jonah Goldberg want, blah, 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 blah. And I think that this is one of the fundamental challenges that Trump has. It illuminates one of the fundamental Trump, one of the, one of the fundamental challenges that Trump has insofar as the universe of, you know, of conservative voters that is larger that that exists is considerably larger than the 
core 32, 34% yes. of his base. And, um, the, and when you, so when you have, when you define conservatism as blind loyalty to an individual personality, rather than a set of ideas or issues, you're going to lose some of those people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it seems to me that one of the, the, the really important things for conservatives, libertarians, classical liberals, all these people is to keep their eye on the ball about the long game. And that's why I want to talk about donors trust. John and Jane have college aged children, and it wasn't long before the couple discovered the world looked different when viewed through this new college lens. Since then, they've been supporting classroom and other foundational programs that teach the principles of economic liberty the rule of law, and free expression. They could have written personal checks to accomplish their goals, but instead they opened a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust. At Donors Trust, they knew they would spend less time on administration and more time having an impact. A donor-advised fund is like a charitable savings account where you can manage your giving in a smart, tax-advantaged, and private way. Donors Trust is unique, working with donors at all levels who share a commitment to the freedoms and principles that strengthen America. Donors Trust's philanthropic advisors can help you sharpen your giving, discover new groups, and define your charitable legacy. Join the community of liberty-minded donors at Donors Trust. To see how a donor-advised fund could benefit your giving, go to DonorsTrust.org slash Gingo for their six reasons to use a donor-advised fund. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. We thank our friends at Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so um, I want to get off COVID. You know, that's one of the places where I agree with the White House. I would like to move beyond COVID. But, um, so like, I don't think I'm being unfair to you or speaking out of school. But you've always taken it a bit more seriously than I have. I mean, I, I wear masks when I go into stores. I don't go to super spreader events, all that kind of stuff. I follow the protocols. But and I don't think you're a mask extremist either. But like, I don't wear masks when I'm outside walking my dogs unless somebody's approaching and it looks right. like they're concerned. That kind yeah, of thing, me right? neither. Um, and I despise and I'm, I'm so angry at the needless effort to turn the mask thing into yeah. a stupid culture war fight. But at some point, there's this problem that happens in politics where eventually, we saw it with Trump, but we see it with all sorts of things, where if the talking points of the day, if the rhetoric of the day is X, then eventually you start believing X because people don't like the cognitive dissonance of, of lying all the time. Mm -hmm. And so eventually you just sort of see the ideological superstructure of the right change. And I bring this up because I have written a dozen columns about what I thought at the time was the stupidity of this sort of Republican war on science and re Republicans are against science and all this kind of stuff. And almost invariably, when you look closely at that is Republicans are against science because they disagree with me about climate change. And there are all sorts of things that liberals and leftists don't like about science either from right. GMOs to nuclear power, all of these kinds of things. And it's a, it was always a cheap, talking point. Um, but then I read this quote from Howard, from, from Ron Johnson today in the Washington post, where he says, he says, we're, um, there's an, a level of unjustifiable hysteria about the virus. Um, and then he goes on to say, quote, why do we think we actually can stop the progression of a contagious disease? I mean, <laughs> and I, I was like, it's smallpox just <laughs> um, it's just know, unbelievable i mean it's like the, 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 literally the story of how we have health and prosperity in the modern world malaria you know we wiped out malaria which was a pretty freaking contagious disease in europe in the 20th century i mean this is all uh, malaria in the united states used to be a big deal and i just don't i, I don't get and i and i actually think ron johnson believes this now and I don't think he was the kind of guy who believed this kind of nonsense before. But, you know, when you talk, because you talk to a lot more politicians than I do, um, for reasons I'm sure having to do with original sin. Um, uh, <laughs> how many of them, in your experience, believe most of this crap? Yeah, not many. I mean, it, it's it, it, this has been sort of one of the, the the constant questions of the Trump era. And, and I think 
honing in specifically on on the questions of science and and amplifying a bunch of bad uh, policy choices or or arguments, rhetorical arguments that we've heard from some from Trump world. I think you have, in many cases, people making arguments they don't believe, and uh, that sucks. I think that sucks on a, on a bunch of levels. Is it worse than people believing really bad or ahistorical arguments, um, arguments that actually are counter science? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's probably as bad as that. So, in a in a weird way, I'm I'm optimistic that people are cowardly about <laughs> making uh, making those kind of scientifically uh, accurate arguments. It, it's you hope that you hope that this will end at some point, but you worry that people have gotten so accustomed to the applause and the kudos and the likes on Twitter and all the stuff that compels people to do this this kind of thing that that it won't that it'll just continue because those are those are how the incentives are aligned these days um all right so if you had to i know we're not in the prediction business but um if you had to bet how the rest of the camp well let's start with let's start with something easy what do you expect to happen this will come out either late today or first thing tomorrow tomorrow is the vice presidential debate um let's do some rank punditry uh, what do you think that's going to look like? Uh, I think Mike Pence is going to do his level best to to uh, portray Kamala Harris as a, an extreme liberal, extreme progressive, and probably will do a decent job of it because she is, in fact, pretty extreme and pretty progressive. Um, so the case, he, when he's on offense, I expect that he will be pretty good. His problem is he's likely to be on defense a lot for reasons that I think are obvious to everybody. Um, and to the extent that that the debate focuses on the things that are in the news now, and it sort of has to in some respects, that just puts him at a huge disadvantage. Um, so I, I do think people, and this is probably conventional wisdom or on the way to becoming conventional wisdom, if it's not already, I do think this debate has the potential to matter more than most debates do because most vice both presidential of them, debates. Uh, vice presidential debates because both of them are viewed as you know closer to the presidency than previous would be vice vice presidents um because of the age and and health of of the the presidential nominees so i do think it may get more sort of carry on attention i don't think that necessarily means that that it'll have huge ratings or you know uh you know, the number of set, what was it? 73 million people plus streamers who watched the first presidential debate. I don't think it'll be anywhere near that, but I think it could matter. I think it could have, could, it, it could, people could look at it and take it more seriously than they otherwise would. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, you say it should be obvious, but, um, uh, there, what's the, I can't remember the Orwell quote, but in, times like this um i'll butcher it you know in times like this there's there's nothing braver than pointing out the obvious right Um, the the reason why it's really bad for pence it seems to me is that he was the head of the coronavirus task force and um and he is going to be put in this position of having to say we've handled it great but oh yeah the president the um and the the head of the rnc um, and a big chunk of a White House staff, a few senators, including those on the Judiciary Committee where, you know, our top priority is to get this uh, nomination through. And the one thing that could jeopardize it is a bu- is people like Mike Lee getting too sick to participate. Um, and that's that's a hard argument to make, you know. Yeah. Um, and, if, if, and if Kamala Harris, who I think is a wildly exaggerated political talent. I don't think she's very good. She's not very good at message discipline and all that. But if she, she is a former prosecutor. If she can't make that case, then, you know, she deserves to be kicked off the ticket as far as I'm concerned. But I would, if, if I were giving, if I were giving her advice, I would, I would have her do something slightly different. I mean, I think that that's, you're right. It, that is sort of an obvious opening. And if she can prosecute that case effectively, I think it could do real damage. To Mike Pence, because, you know, look around. Um, I would have her do something slightly different. I think if I were Kamala Harris, I would do everything I could to 
drive a wedge between Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Because you know right now, Mike Pence reads the polls as much as we all do. We know that Mike Pence wants to run for president in 2024. There, there has to be, given what we're seeing with coronavirus, given the fact that he was the head of the coronavirus task force, this, this constant impulse, if you're Mike Pence, not to shoulder the blame for what's happened. Yeah. And, and to, to, to point at Donald Trump and say, look, I tried to be the responsible one here, but look at that guy, look what he's doing. And I think she can sort of scramble his brain a little bit. If she maybe even praises Mike Pence, you know, wow, you were the one who took this seriously. You were the one who, who listened to the scientists. You were the one who brokered these conversations and did, you know, damage repair after Donald Trump said that he was going to go after blue state governors or that he might withhold payments or that, you know, it was the fault of the Obama administration that the PPE was depleted. I think she could be very effective at making Mike Pence defend something that he knows it's not in his own political interests to defend, but which would be very, very uncomfortable for him not to defend in the moment because he knows how much Donald Trump cares about being defended. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, there's also just this uncharted waters thing that we're in, in that um, for all of our lives, and I think maybe all of American history for all I know, um, it'd be interesting to talk to somebody about 19th century politics. Um, the job of the vice president is to be the attack dog. Right. And the problem is, is that Donald Trump has flipped that script. He's been the attack dog his entire presidency. Right. And and Pence has taken the role of the reassuring presence. Right. I mean, it, I mean, it, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Cheney, to a certain extent, was a reassuring presence, but not a reassuring presence in the sense that Bush was an attack dog, but that people thought maybe Bush was a lightweight or that he wasn't up to the job. And Cheney was this sort of gravitas guy. But Pence has been the guy who, you know, is the glass of warm milk, right? He's the guy who says civility is important, always tries to, you know, treat people with respect. That's been his shtick for a very long time since he ran his first campaign was nasty. And he said, took an oath to God that he was not going to be that kind of person ever anymore. And so now he's in this weird place of needing to be the attack dog while defending an attack dog um, and defending the coronavirus response while at the same time not wanting to blow up his own chances to run for president. It's a, it's yeah. a, it's a tough you know, portfolio. I mean, I think, if, I think if you're Pence, you enter the debate basically saying, I need to, to, do, I, I need to be the one who, who fills in the sort of substantive gaps in the rhetorical argument that Donald Trump has made that Joe Biden is effectively Bernie Sanders, right? Like they're basically the same guy and, you know, Biden might be a little bit less crotchety and, and less grumpy, but he's basically a socialist. I think if you're Pence, your argument is probably on substance. You know, that's a way to get ideological conservatives who might be flighty to stick with to stick with you, um, I, you know, you pound the Supreme Court stuff. And look, there is a lot, as we've discussed before, there's a lot in what Biden is proposing on a policy level that's a fat target for somebody to make an ideological case against a Biden-Harris, uh, a potential Biden-Harris administration. We've, we have run at the dispatch a, a series of pieces on the Biden agenda, which basically, the, if you had to sum them up, I think we've had maybe close to a dozen at this point. If you had to sum them up, it's, wow, Joe Biden really is running the most progressive political campaign, running as the most progressive candidate in recent American history, more than Hillary Clinton, more than Barack Obama. Mike Pence should should be able to exploit that, I would think, and and try to make, you know, I think the the, the challenge there is to use that to make Joe Biden and Kamala Harris look like the risky choice rather than Donald Trump look like the risky choice. Yeah, and, and it seems to me, I, mean, I think that's right. And I think there's a huge fat target with the Biden team's refusal to answer the court packing question, which is legitimately outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the advantage that Pence had in 2016, which they replayed at the convention, right, is to um, describe Donald Trump in ways that contradict what we see publicly. Um, 
in the sense that the real Donald Trump I know is compassionate and he's he's diligent and he does his homework and he loves the Constitution and yada, yada, yada. And that act was easier in 2016 when yes. Trump was an unknown quantity to a, in a lot of ways and running against Hillary Clinton, who's history's greatest monster. It's much tougher after four years of getting to know Donald Trump right. to just take Mike Pence's word for all of it, which is, you know, kind of tough. And they're just assertions. You know, what was striking to me about the entire Republican National Convention is you had people one after another go to the stage or go to the virtual stage and make these kind of arguments without ever really being able to back them up by stories. Like, what are your examples? You know, if, if you're going to say Donald Trump is really compassionate, you know, you can, you can come up with a, a couple. I'm sure Mike Pence will, but it's, it's a difficult argument. I would definitely spend more of my time if I were Mike Pence. Uh, trying to be on the offensive and making a sort of a broad ideological case. All right. So, you know, um, very quickly, we should probably talk a little bit about um, the dispatch and the role that it's playing and what we're trying to do in the time coming ahead. But first, um, I should say something about caucus room. If you've tried to share your political opinions on social media lately, you know it can be a frustrating experience between the anger the virtual shouting, and even fake accounts. It seems like civil conversation is a thing of the past. Luckily, now there's caucusroom.com, a social media network exclusively for conservatives. Caucus Room is an online community for conservatives to gather, encourage, and engage locally. Only real people who are verified conservatives can become Caucus Room members, but Caucus Room will never share your information with anyone, ever. The sign-up process ensures you're communicating with real conservatives, no bots or trolls. Caucus Room allows you to engage with your neighbors. You have no idea how many conservatives are hiding in your neighborhood. It's a great way to get engaged on issues where you can make the biggest difference locally. At Caucus Room, you can participate in live virtual meetings that are so secure the platform played host to over a dozen virtual Republican Party conventions this year. You can also share news, jokes, and find ways to get involved with caucuses near you. Caucus Room is made by conservatives for conservatives to get organized and make a difference. That's caucusroom.com, C-A-U-C-U-S, room.com. We, we thank Caucus Room for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant, and we wish them all the luck in the world. Okay, so Steve, um, I know you got to hop. Um, there's a case of cheap Spanish wine on the docks that you've got to go get or something. Um, but, uh, since you're the CEO guy and have to do all the business meetings that I try to dodge and get dragged into, um, how are things going at our, our little venture? Uh, things are going well, you know, do you, we haven't really spent much time talking about this, uh, on Thursday. We have the one-year anniversary of our soft launch when we first posted our manifesto, our What Are We Doing essay to the website. And then the first morning dispatch was that following day, which was a Friday. And then there was a Friday G file. And then we were sort of off. So, I mean, we don't need to belabor it, but things are going great. Things are going uh, a lot better than certainly we had projected even in our most optimistic scenarios in terms of paying members in terms of our overall uh list of subscribers uh wildly better than we told than we we assured our investors a year ago that's true that's that is knock on wood that that continues but that's a good place to be in <laughs> yeah for right now yeah i think our original projection was 4200 paying members at the end of 2020 so you know with still a couple more months ahead of us and we're we're quickly approaching 20,000 paying members so for those of you who are listening and you are a paying member Incredibly grateful uh, for your support, and we hope we have earned it uh, on a continuing basis. And for those of you who are not, um, we have two more days of a 30-day free trial. So jump in before we end that. That ends Thursday at midnight, I believe. So jump in 30 days, no risk, cancel anytime. We hope you'll stick with us. If you don't and you want to get the free stuff, stick around and read the free stuff. No hard feelings. Um, and I believe that's the dispatch.com slash, uh, 30 days free. So that's where you go. Um, so just because I get asked this all the time, you know, what do we do if Trump wins? What do we do if Trump loses? And my own standard answer is the same thing. 
Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, there are those two paths look different, you know, because the external environment will look different, but you know, we, we, you know, we are not an anti-Trump endeavor where we, we see ourselves as sort of committed to, to sort of various journalistic and conservative principles and, 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 and classical liberal pr principles that we think are true regardless of who the president of the United States is. Um, but let's just say for the sense of, sake of argument, Trump loses. What do you think the right, what do you think conservative media looks like? Uh, that's a really good question. I think it's a scramble because, you know, as, as you've argued probably more persuasively than anybody, what we've seen from a lot of uh, conservative media outlets, not all of them, to be very clear, not all of them, uh, but from too many of them, in, in my view, is this eagerness to be just uh, a partisan water carriers, partisan war fighters, um, or even even worse, in my view, somebody who just amplifies Donald Trump and and his arguments and the arguments that his people want to hear because that will get them traffic and clicks and and maybe some revenue. Uh, we we sort of launched with a very different model than that. I think we've we've managed to stick to it. And I think you're right. I think if you look at the the that post-Trump landscape, if it happens in in a little over a month, I hope that we will have, by virtue of the work that we've done, earned credibility to be seen by primarily uh, and, and most importantly our own paying readers, our our or paying members, our our readers. And others, uh, a credible news outlet. People can come to us and they can, they can trust what we're giving them and know that we're not, we didn't carry water at a time when a lot of other people wanted to carry water and we're not going to do it in the future. I also think if, if we're facing a Biden administration, it will be important to have sort of uh, credible, fact-based uh, arguments about the excesses of government. You know, we, we in, in that launch manifesto that I mentioned, we talked about our fidelity to the sort of the, the principles of the founding and limited government. Well, that's going to matter a lot, it seems to me, in a potential Biden administration, given everything we just said about the way that he's campaigning. Uh, we, you know, we take that seriously. What I hope we can avoid doing, I, I'm pretty confident we can avoid doing, is just joining the inevitable food fight, you know, where it's just a lot of throwing stuff back and forth. We don't want to do that. We'd like to make fact-based arguments, point out where there are serious policy differences and hope that we can convince enough people by the arguments that we make that we're right. And, and uh, that course, if he, if he ends up taking it, is not right. That's what we tried to do in this Biden agenda series. I think that's, that's sort of a model for what we'll do, we would do in a Biden administration. Yeah, it was not exactly a series that the Biden campaign would love. I mean, just so people understand, no, you know, definitely not. there are a lot of pieces that are pretty, very tough on Biden and, and deservedly so, you know, um, which I think speaks to where we're coming from and all, but done in good faith. Right. I mean, we didn't, right. we're not taking pot shots at him. We're not, you know, these are substantive policy critiques and I think they were very well done. Um, all right. I know you got to run, go do some meeting about, uh, stapler acquisition in the fourth quarter or something <laughs> like that. I, I don't know what witchcraft you're up to, but uh, thanks for coming on. And um, folks can listen to us. We'll try not to repeat ourselves on the Dispatch podcast, which we'll be recording, I believe, tomorrow. Um, but, you know, we'll cover some of the same ground. Um, and you can be sure that Sarah Isger will be mean to us. Um, <laughs> so, Steve Hayes, thanks for being on. Thanks for scraping the, the bottom of the barrel again. Any, <laughs> anytime you need a pinch hitter. I appreciate that. Okay, so Steve has left the building. Um, I think we kept it remarkably civil and analytical, um, and uh, didn't. And I just struggled mightily to um, restrain some of my, um, I think, well-deserved rage at how some of this stuff has been handled of late, and how um, various people have uh, redefined manhood uh, to. Uh, make it seem like what Trump has been doing over the last 72 hours has been super manly. Um, and maybe we'll do a whole remnant one of these days just on what it means to be a man and what it doesn't mean to be a man. Um, or maybe it'll be more culturally infused and we'll do it on what it means to be a mensch. And a mensch is better than man. 
Um, but it's not the Ubermensch. That's a completely different podcast. That would be on Parlay or Parlor or one of those places. Um, but uh, thanks to Steve for coming back on. And do please try, check out the um, uh, our 30-day trial. It would be great if we could pass uh, 20,000 paid members uh, before the, 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 the anniversary. We're really, really close. And certainly before the end of the year. I mean, I think we'll get there regardless before the end of the year. But it would just be better and a great bragging point for us. Um, it'd be fun to point out to um, various people whose names I still remember, but will not remind you of at this point, who assured um, everybody in public in various interviews that we were doomed to failure, um, including some people who are ostensibly friends of mine. And more about that one day, I suppose, when um, uh, I decide to give full voice to some of my um, receipts that I'm holding, but or maybe not, because I'm trying to be a better man. Either way, uh, thanks for listening. We'll have in the show notes that that sort of opening manifesto thing that we were talking about, and um, and I do want to get on the record. This is this is a passive aggressive way, uh, no longer passive because I'm telling people what I'm doing, of chastising the production staff here who does an, an enormously good job and works incredibly hard, um, particularly um, our head of all things podcasting, uh, Caleb. But uh, I got some blowback from a recent episode, the Dickerson episode, which was mostly um, got wild praise. People really liked it. People didn't think it was sort of like the Cass Sunstein episode where a lot of people were just sure they were a lot of conservatives were sure they were not going to like a liberal guest on the show or a mainstream media guest on the show. And they were pleasantly surprised to find out that they were thoughtful and not the caricature that people thought they were. But we dropped the ball and we should own up to it. Woodrow Wilson was mentioned. And there was no ominous music. There was no orc battle cry. There was no sort of nod to the eternal truth that Woodrow Wilson was a terrible human being and a terrible president of the United States. And this is one of these traditions that should live on on this podcast, even when it is uh, crushing Joe Rogan and Conan O'Brien in the downloads, because uh, we are partly here as an educational service. And if, if we can't educate people on this basic truth, then why are we even here? So, and I can see uh, Nick and Caleb rolling their eyes and smirking at me as I say this, and you're just going to have to suck it up because you're on mute. So uh, with that, I will see you next time. Shut up, Jonah. Sure.